Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here coming to you live from almost Switzerland. As I mentioned at the beginning of yesterday's show, and I spoke to you about, I believe, last week or a couple of weeks ago, we are covering the World Economic Forum live, the annual meeting, which is taking place in the Swiss Alpine village of Davos. But uh, because the WEF likes to just buy up all of the hotels and Airbnbs within a rather sizable radius, we were uh, forced uh, not just a, a couple of counties over, but we're even staying across the border in Österreich, as they say in, well, as they say in Österreich, as they say in Austria, where we are. And uh, we had uh, Cosman Georgia in the studio yesterday, and by studio, I mean the hotel room. Uh, we got a little creative today because we found there was like a button that turns on this like weird uh, fake fireplace type thing, which I hope is fake because I, I'm sitting right beside it and I might just melt by the time the show is done. But uh, nevertheless, this is going to be, I hope, an interesting show. It's day two officially of the WEF's annual meeting 2024. And we're already getting a bit of a glimpse of why it is that the elites don't like people penetrating their safe space. Uh, penetrating, that is the word that Klaus Schwab used to describe his relationship with the government of Canada. As I mentioned yesterday, the theme for this year's conference is rebuilding trust. And uh, there was a clip I had shared from an interview Klaus Schwab did in which I learned that uh, he doesn't really view the trust crisis as being one of institutions making. He doesn't think it's the WEF's fault or the media's fault or government's fault or experts' fault that there's no trust in them. He thinks that it's the fault of so-called egotistical people. He elaborated a little bit more in his opening remarks today. This was the, the second day of the conference, but it was the first main day of programming. And in his opening remarks, he talked about exactly what it is that rebuilding trust means. And what I found interesting, it wasn't quite as menacing as the introduction he gave uh, last year, I think it was, the future is built by us, but still certainly some shades of that. As trustees of the future, we are responsible for advancing a world which is richer in possibilities, more equitable in opportunities, and more secure in its foundations. Moreover, as leaders in government, business and society, we bear a particular responsibility to rebuild trust in how we assume our own role as trustees. The annual meeting of the World Economic Forum is not a collective decision-making body, but its impact stems from the new insights gained through dialogue and interaction, and more importantly, from the commitments made by each participant to contribute more significantly in their respective areas of responsibility to solving our most pressing issues. 
you, you can tell they're trying to preempt the conspiracy theories or what they denounce and write off as conspiracy theories. Talking about how, oh, it's not a collective decision-making body. We're not all just getting behind closed doors and deciding things. No, we're just eliciting commitments for things from the people who are here behind closed doors. Yes, and my friends, that's what I have said in the past. That's what I said yesterday is why this is important to cover because we have world leaders that are going here that are making these commitments as Klaus Schwab puts them and their citizens are the ones left paying the price, both literally and figuratively. Now, I wanted to, just before we get into some of the newer things that have happened today, share a, a bit of context with you. So yesterday, I noted that this was an incredibly untransparent organization doing a very untransparent conference. And, and by that, I mean that they have not released the guest list. The uh, 2,800 delegates who are here in Davos, they're not sharing anything about who they are. Yeah, well, except for like a few dozen world leaders. They'll mention that, oh, uh, you know, Antony Blinken is there and uh, the premier of China is there, but uh, not really the real member list or guest list here. So when we've been out and about on the streets of Davos, what we've been doing is basically just, uh, this will sound very low tech because it is, you kind of just squint and everyone's wearing their name tag and you look at the name and you look at the title or the organization and uh, you decide if it's someone that you should be grabbing or sometimes you just recognize people outright. Now, uh, why I, I share that is because it's gotten a little bit difficult uh, this year compared to years past. When we've done this previously, this has just been like this billionaire Disneyland where people are feeling unthreatened. They're just walking about in their own little world because they're not actually used to anyone entering what I have termed the billionaire elite's safe space. They've never really had any prying eyes here. One of the pervasive themes of this conference is that much of the media who's in attendance is here not with the intent of reporting on the conference, but they're actually here as the invited guests of the World Economic Forum. They're here with the coveted white badges, so as to indicate they are among the elites being feted and venerated. Okay, so what does that mean about independent media here? Well, look, we can only do the work that we're doing from the street. We aren't in the Congress Center, we aren't inside, but we can still see a lot of the comings and goings. Now, well, this is true to some extent. One thing I've noticed, and again, this is early days still, there seems to be a lot less coming and going than there was even last year, which is an apples to apples comparison because last year was generally speaking a post-COVID winter summit. Well, this year it's harder to find people. People seem to be in hiding. They are hiding their name tags. And uh, what I found interesting is that even when you get to the point where you can talk to people, they do not want to talk about their records. Again, they're not comfortable with the idea of people paying attention and covering it. Dare I say it, but the World Economic Forum has been put on notice, and many of the people here, uh, certainly not Klaus Schwab, but many of the people that are outside that inner sanctum of the organization seem to be running just a little bit scared. Now, I want to do a bit of a history lesson here, because two years ago, not long history, don't worry, there was a clip that I shared that uh, jumped out to me from one of the panels that ended up, I think it was like my most viewed tweet ever. It got like millions. I, I can't remember the exact number, but millions of views for this little clip of a guy named J. Michael Evans, who is the president of Alibaba Group, which is a, a big Chinese merchandising sales distribution network, whatever you want to call it. 
He's Canadian, but he has decided that he wants to go and legitimize this Chinese, in many ways, state-affiliated enterprise. Now, he was talking about one innovation, which if you hear it just on its own merits will sound creepy, but all the more so if you think of it in the context of China and its social credit system. We're developing through technology an ability for consumers to measure their own carbon footprint. What does that mean? That's where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Mm. Stay tuned. We don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on. Few little caveats there, and I, I don't want to do the semantics thing. And I'm, I'm going to play this clip again for you in a few moments after another one, because he, he uses words developing yet. Stay tuned. He, he's talking about this. He's very excited about this. A, an individual carbon footprint tracker. Now, the most charitable defense that people would give to that as well. He, he's not saying it's mandatory. No, it's just it's voluntary. It's a thing you can do. If you want to track your carbon footprint, you can. Well, I, I brought up China because this is a social credit score by another name. We're just measuring social credit, not in terms of your uh, <laughs> diligence in upholding what the state wants in all areas. You're just doing it on the climate front. Now, what was interesting when I shared this clip, it actually got a lot of criticism from environmentalists who said, well, hold on. How, how come it's on individual people to make sure that they're getting the low methane beef and not on people like J. Michael Evans to not take their private jets to Davos. Now, to be clear, I don't know if he was one of the private jetters this year at the World Economic Forum, but the point stands that it was a very creepy thing. And that clip went around the world. The clip that we pulled that we shared uh, was picked up by Legacy Media. Now, lo and behold, I was out on the streets of Davos today, and don't I see Mr. J. Michael Evans. Now, uh, you may think I am trying to settle old scores by bringing up a two-year-old clip, but he was saying this was something he was moving ahead with and we should all stay tuned for, so I wanted to ask about that. Here's the exchange. Mr. Evans, Andrew Lawton with uh, True North in Canada. A couple of years ago, you were talking about a carbon footprint tracker that Alibaba was developing, and I was curious if you think that's the way of the future. Don't know, something to be considered for sure. Do you think that everyone should have their carbon footprint tracked on everything down to what they eat and where they go and, and what they buy? No, of course not. Then why were you promoting it with such enthusiasm? I wasn't promoting it, just discussing it as an idea. It's a product you're offering, is it not? No, it's not. Then why, you, were, you literally said you were developing it. Lots of things get, you know, are in development that don't get used. Gotta Thank go. I, I love that. Oh, no, we were just discussing the idea. Lots of things get developed. That doesn't mean they happen. It's no biggie. And I, I love the little bit at the end, uh, those three words, gotta go. He just like bolted in, uh, bolted. basically he did, what was, the, what was the Looney Tunes character? It wasn't, uh, was it Roadrunner? Yeah, he just kind of did like a Roadrunner there. He might as well have just said, well, maybe we'll do a dub online and we'll just do like meet meep and that'll be like what he says. And then he just zooms off into the distance. But I, I want you to contrast what he said there, this nonchalant lots of, oh yeah, no, just something to consider. It was just an idea. Who knows? We're not offering this to the way he spoke about it. I'm going to play it again in 2022. We're developing through technology an ability for consumers to measure their own carbon footprint. What does that mean? That's where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? 
So individual carbon footprint tracker. Mm. Stay tuned. We don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on. Now, maybe this was just an example of them getting some blowback and realizing, okay, we shouldn't go down this road. Maybe it was just that he was playing coy because he didn't want to talk about the fact that they still believe this is, in fact, the future. I don't know. But what it strikes me as is a guy that when he's speaking to his elite friends in the boardrooms and conference rooms of Davos is all too willing to gloat about this stuff that is very anti-individual and very anti-science, I would say. But when he's out and he realizes he's talking to real people, he is singing from a different songbook. It's much like the interview I did at that same World Economic Forum, by the way. No, sorry, that was a different one. Uh, with the Minister of Gas and Petroleum in India, Hardeep Singh Puri, where uh, he had inside the room talked about the importance of just transition. And outside on the streets, he's saying, ah, well, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's not what real people think. These are elites that want to be members of the club. But the problem is, because they want to be members of the club, they end up giving what Klaus Schwab termed in that clip I played earlier, those commitments. And who is it that pays the price? People like you and me who can't really vote these people out. There's no way to vote out Klaus Schwab. There's no way to vote against the World Economic Forum's policy agenda unless you have a government that is at least forthright enough to put it forward as their own national agenda, which, by the way, in Canadian context, some politicians have. There are some uh, little bits of candor on this, but not nearly as much as there should be. So uh, J. Michael Evans was just one example. I also caught up with John Kerry, who uh, you may recall, he was once a, a big shot American politician. He was a United States senator. He ran for president in 2004, but lost to George W. Bush. And he later found success as Joe Biden's climate envoy. So John Kerry is the guy they send to fly around the world uh, to tell you all that you shouldn't fly around the world. Not that you can afford to anyway, because you're not John Kerry. Well, John Kerry has a private jet infatuation. Maybe that's the right word. I don't know. Now, I'm not just saying he enjoys living high on the hog and that sometimes his work lets him take a private jet. I'm saying in his personal life, his family uh, owns a private jet. His wife, uh, Teresa Hines Carey, I believe still owns a private jet and he has traveled on this regularly in the course of his life. I, I wasn't even going to do the private jet thing because it's like the low hanging fruit with John Kerry. But uh, when I ran into him, the question I wanted to ask him, I wasn't really getting any traction with, which was uh, whether he views China as being a partner in the fight against climate change. Now, I, I, you may think I'm accepting the premise there. What I was trying to do, if I, I let you, uh, you know, inside what's here, which not usually anything, but just bear with me for a moment. Uh, what I was saying is that uh, there needs to be an ideal, ideally, there needs to be a reckoning with the fact that China is industrializing, it's building more coal, it doesn't really care about its emissions, it's uh, dominant if you measure emissions and accept those measurements at face value. Well, countries like Canada are, what, 1.5%. So why, this would have been the second part of the question, should people in Canada pay the price when China is not prepared to? And, and John Kerry loves kissing the ring, he loves shaking Xi Jinping's hand, he loves talking about how great China is, but he didn't want to talk about it when I ran into him earlier today. Mr. Kerry, do you believe China is a good partner in the fight against climate change? I'm not doing an interview right now because I'm late. Well, I'm walking alongside you. I won't make you miss your meeting. 
We can walk and talk. Do you believe China is a good partner in the fight against climate change? I'm doing an interview right now. You, did you fly private, sir? You, did no, you I did not. Jet? Nope, I did never. not. Nev you, are you saying he's never flown private? Not us in this job, no. <laughs> not in this job. What, what? You believe your colleagues here should not take private jets here? You can't grab me. You can't grab us. This is a place so I, there's a little bit you don't see there, and, and we, we don't normally edit footage. The, the reason we edited there is, as you saw, uh, Avi Yamini from Rebel News uh, was also uh, horning in on my opportunity with John Kerry there, and I didn't want to steal their thunder. So I, I'll let Avi put out his questions, and I put out my questions, and I get Avi can put out my questions too. I don't really care too, too much. And there was a, there was a bit of a physical altercation that he got into, which uh, fortunately I was spared from, but... Uh, at one point, I asked, look, do you, do you fly private? And it was the woman in front of him, who I, I don't know, presumably is an aide in some way. She got very indignant about it and, and said, you know, no, never or something like that. And, and then I just got like baffled because I'm like, hang on. Are we just like totally, they call this gaslighting. Are we just like totally rewriting history here? So then I got kind of indignant on my part. And I said, are, are you saying he's never flown private? And then, he, then you hear the, the other shoe drop as well. Well, not in this job. Uh, yeah, okay. So your carbon footprint is job dependent. So you, you can fly in a private jet when you're on your own time, uh, but not when you are doing the, the climate work that uh, Joe Biden has asked you to do. So uh, again, here's a guy that does not want to talk about his record, a guy that doesn't want to talk about the things that matter to real people, the real people that are going to have to pay the price for whatever commitments he and his colleagues make around the table at Davos. Now, what I have said in the past on this is that people need to realize there is a product being sold at Davos, and it is access to politicians. Business leaders pay, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars to be at the World Economic Forum annual meeting. Some companies pay uh, basically hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to be members, which gives them the right to buy tickets for tens of thousands of dollars. So the WEF is a big, giant money-making operation. If you are Accenture, say, which is one of the so-called strategic partners of the WEF or Microsoft or Salesforce, all of these people that are mainstays here, what do they get out of it? Surely they have the ability to pick up the phone and call their colleagues. Surely the president of Microsoft doesn't have difficulty getting most other people in the tech world and even other worlds on the phone. Why does he need to be here and spend so much money doing it? Because what the WEF does is puts them in the same room as politicians. Politicians where it's not always easy to just call them up. And more importantly, there are all these like pesky things like lobbying registries that you need to contend with if you do. So when you're in Davos, these things don't apply. The president of Microsoft, just to give one example, because I saw him today, can end up behind closed doors with, I don't know, Ukraine's energy minister. I don't know if those two have any conversations, I, I don't care. I'm, I'm using them purely as examples of people that I've seen in the last four hours. People like Christian Freeland can end up behind closed doors with Klaus Schwab without it being something that is registered or tracked or even announced or disclosed anywhere on any official agenda. So the politicians get to come for free. And there's an old saying, I don't know who coined it, I don't know the exact wording, but the paraphrase of it which I'll share with you now is something I very much believe, that if you are not paying for a product, you are the product. This is why you don't pay to use social media because you are the product being sold to advertisers. Politicians don't pay to be in attendance at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting because they are the product being sold to businesses. So keep that in mind as you hear European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen 
in her opening remarks this morning at the beginning of this conference. Many of the solutions lie not only in countries working together, but crucially on businesses and governments, business and democracies working together. It has never been more important for the public and private sector to create new connective tissue, because none of these challenges respects borders. They each require collaboration to manage risks and to forge a path forward. And this is what I want to talk today about. While governments hold many of the levers to deal with the great challenges of our time, business have the innovation, the technology, the talents to deliver the solutions we need, to fight threats like climate change or industrial-scale disinformation. Industrial-scale disinformation. This is like the only industrial... Oh, no, actually, no, they don't like any industrialization. So, yeah, industrial production, manufacturing, and disinformation all going the way of the dodo bird. But uh, that was her saying, yeah, we, we need to bring more of an alliance between governments and corporations. These are the kinds of things that many people on the left take great issue with traditionally. And I think people on the right have started to, as the makeup of what the right looks like has changed, uh, raise alarms with as well. And I mean, when they use disinformation, again, I go back to what the theme of this conference is, rebuilding trust. But they don't view the institutions that have seen trust in decline as sharing any blame in that. They point elsewhere and say, oh, well, yes, it's industrial disinformation that's the problem. And what do we do? We get commitments from private corporations to do the government's dirty work and rein this in. And again, I mean, I've said in the Canadian context, when we're talking about speech regulations, that the worst thing we could see is not government censorship, but government deputized private corporate censorship, where you still have government fiat behind it but you don't even have the, the last ditch effort of like a judge that you can go to to review the decision. If Facebook is censoring you on the government's behalf, who's your grievance with? Is it with Facebook or is it with the government? And this one, actually, I, I haven't even seen the clip. I, I just saw a blurb that was shared by, by one of my colleagues, Artem, uh, in one of our, our group chats here. This is Alexandra Reeve Gibbons, who is the president and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology, talking about one of those very commitments that we could see that she would like to see evidently from private tech corporations. Take a look. So we're in this bizarre environment where right as the threats are ticking up, the investments uh, in actually doing the day-to-day -day work of online trust and safety for our information environment is being scaled back and is under attack. And those are all things we need to recalibrate right now to try and address mm. the threats. This year. And just quickly, how? Yeah, so we have to have the, the social media keep, companies keep up the work. There are really important lessons. Is that, there a way to force them to do that, push them to do that? Uh, you get them to places like Davos and you have them talk about the work. <laughs> uh, you know, right now, because a lot of it sadly is in the, in the you know, the, the staffing and decisions of companies, making sure they're putting in those investments, making sure that they're sharing information, that they're doing it not just for the U.S. election, but for the other elections around the world. Um, you know, that, that has to stay a key focus, even if there is political pressure. There are important learns, lessons that we learned after 2016, right? Pe social media companies learned about 
how you track mis- and disinformation campaigns, what coordinated and authentic activity looks like on a network, how you put breaks in, how when you know a rumor is flying, you get people to check whether or not, uh, you know, have you read this article before you forward it, fact-checking programs, that architecture, it hasn't been a silver bullet by a long shot, but at least that architecture has been in place. And there's an entire academic field now that studies this and analyzes what interventions might look like. We have to make sure that those interventions are still in place this year as a bare minimum for us to be able to navigate this landscape. Now, just for context, when she talks about this year, there is uh, in 2024, not just an American election, but apparently I, someone said this and I haven't verified it myself, but it makes sense enough sense that there, there are just going to be a ton of elections in 2024. For whatever reason, this is just a global election year. So that's why, or at least part of the reason why mis and disinformation are, are ostensibly so high on their radar. But, but isn't her solution so nice? How, how do you force the tech companies to do what you want? Well, you just get them to Davos. And she says it with a bit of a chuckle. I, maybe we don't read too much into it, but there does seem to be this thinking that, oh, well, you just bring them there. And when they all get in the same room, they magically make those commitments. Ooh, well, it might be working. It might not be. Who knows? I haven't seen much in the way of big tech executives running around. And if I do, I may ask. I, I did. I, I'm just going to confess. I did take hot chocolate from Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook. But in my defense, it was incredibly delicious hot chocolate. And you'll learn more about it when I bring back tomorrow the uh, famous Davos hot chocolate ranking, because as I will probably say in that video, you come for the world domination, you stay for the delightful chocolatey beverages. But uh, I, again, apart from the Meta hot chocolate, I haven't seen much from Facebook on this. So it's entirely possible that they are all too willing to go along with this. Maybe they're not. But why? Why is this the discussion that's being had? Why is this the pressing issue facing society? Ursula von der Leyen, who I played that clip from before, she had acknowledged in the beginning of her remarks that mis- and disinformation are the greatest global threat. She says more than war, it's mis- and disinformation. And then a close second behind that was polarization. Now, again, I can agree that polarization is the problem or is a problem. I think that misinformation is a problem, believe it or not. I actually don't like that there are a lot of people in society that do not seem to have the ability to discern. And I know this when I get emails from people saying, did you hear X? And I, I just know that that's not in fact the case. But the problem is, is that I know what misinformation is. Misinformation is people believing something that is not true. Uh, there are a lot of people that think that if I say, oh, uh, well, the World Economic Forum is wielding disproportionate influence on political figures in Canada, they will say that is misinformation, that is disinformation, that is far right, it is dishonest, it is a conspiracy theory when it is literally from the very words of the founding chairman of the organization. So the problem I have is that these people view misinformation as information they do not want to be disseminated instead of what misinformation actually is, which is information that is untrue. So no, I don't support them when they want to summon the tech companies to Davos and just make them take this seriously. And I don't support them when, when that fails, they decide they're going to proceed 
with their own regulations instead, which is what we're seeing in Canada. Canada has failed to get social media companies to do its bidding, so now they are regulating them into compliance. And Facebook, a company with whom I have many, many grievances, by the way, uh, but I support them on this, said, look, I, we're just going to not play ball with this. We're just not, not going to play this game. And as a result, True North is not accessible in Facebook. Uh, now, interestingly, we were uh, driving, uh, my colleague Cosman Jurja, Sean Thompson, my producer, videographer, and I, and uh, Sean was, uh, no, sorry, uh, Cosman was trying to pull up an article. And the link that he found on Google was directing him to Facebook. And he, you know, clicked the link. And even in Switzerland, on his computer, driving through the mountains, he could not open this article to a publication that had nothing to do with Canada because Facebook knew he was Canadian. <laughs> this is literally, Facebook knew he was a Canadian and said, oh, no, you're, you're not allowed to uh, read the news on Facebook. And yeah, it's easy to look at Facebook and say, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. But but Facebook is playing the hand that it was dealt by the federal government. And I share that story because this is precisely what happens when that malign alliance of government and private entities, of government and tech companies in particular, are pushed into this place where they are working together. And, you know, I said at the beginning, and I think the theme of this show has been how the elites are in hiding. The ones that do come out don't want to really talk about the record. Many of them don't want to come out at all. There have been some locals that have taken issue with this. Now, this was just kind of a, a fun thing. I, I don't often do protest interviews because I find a lot of protesters are just going out of their way to get attention. But uh, nevertheless, this was one that I felt succeeded in doing so uh, because I was just out there waiting. I can't remember if this was before or after I had uh, met up with John Kerry. But very, very cold outside, was just hanging out on the street, and I just heard this noise, this indescript or a nondescript noise that was getting louder and louder, and I could not make out what it was. And eventually, I saw it was this. Now, uh, that was, uh, I mean, I, that actually is, is uh, not doing justice to just how loud that was. It was just like echoing and thundering. And what was weird is that those folks had this really, really insane police escort. Like they were being brought down the road by dozens of heavily armed police officers. And I figured, okay, I'll bite. What, what's the deal with this? And I was glad I did because those bells were actually meant to be the sound of freedom, according to one of the organizers. Why are you here and, and what's the name of your group? It's called Freiheitsrichter. That means freedom bell swingers. So we send positive energy. The origin, origin, the origin is to send evil ghosts away to get ghosts with a beautiful energy here. So the World Economic Forum are the evil ghosts to you, right? They're the ones you're trying to get rid of? participant there. I know only that this is, is a village of Switzerland. This is a Swiss village. And I know now it's locked. And you can take a picture of there. Uh, is this dark or is this light energy? We don't know. It's dark. They have dark uniforms. We don't know people who are there inside. 
uh, how are they minded? Do they want to earn money with weapons? Do they want to earn money with climate hoax? We don't know that, but we send light and we hope that you will do the best for this planet. Stop bloodshedding. So your issue is the secrecy? Secrecy. See, uh, you don't like that they're not telling you what they're talking about? I don't like, this is a Swiss, uh, a Swiss village. And here you see some bricks, uh, you see a barrier, you see black people, uh, I mean uh, uh, people in black uniform. And they stop us. This is our country. We don't know why there are people that mighty and that have so much fear that must block a road and that must block our Swiss tradition. This is a Swiss tradition. This road is blocked. We don't want that Swiss traditions are blocked by Mr. Schwab. We don't like that. You know, it was weird. At the beginning, I, I didn't quite know where it was going to go when we were talking about, you know, dark spirits and light spirits and angels and evil ghosts and all of that. I mean, I still don't entirely know if he was doing that to be poetic or if he genuinely views there is something uh, more untoward there. But at the end, I, I actually found it quite moving. What are you saying? Here, here were a group of just normal ordinary Swiss people. Many of them were farmers, I was told. I, I spoke to a few of them. Not all of them spoke English. They were, I think, in, in many respects, working class Swiss people. And they took issue with the fact that their country and this village is taken over once a year by people that really want nothing to do with them and won't even let them walk down the street. And I mean, I can complain as an indignant Canadian journalist, I should be able to walk down the street and report on this. But for them, they really, they have more of a claim than I do to being able to walk down that street. So it was a nice little point in proof that even through the uh, uh, personal carbon footprint trackers and the tech regulation and all of that, there are real people in this country who are affected just by the World Economic Forum's existence, uh, to say nothing of the policies that are being prescribed there. So uh, we are going to get back at it tomorrow. And I just want to say, I mean, it's been so nice to hear all of your messages and comments. I even got some question suggestions for uh, for Mark Carney. I did run into Mark Carney already. I will say Mark Carney is like the, the, the most frequent flyer of Davos. You see him like uh, on the streets, you know, multiple times today. I saw him twice today. I got like I think five seconds with him, which maybe I'll, I'll share tomorrow. I haven't had a chance to see the clip yet, but uh, now it's a little bit different because now he's been like rumored as a replacement for Justin Trudeau. So uh, we'll try to get something more substantive from him later on on that. But uh, more coverage here. And if you do want to support what we're doing, please do head on over to donate.tnc.news, donate.tnc.news. My colleague, uh, Cosman did uh, some of the dirty work. Uh, literally, he was like calling up escort agencies, not uh, you know to bill to the company, but he was trying to get. Well, not that I know of, anyway. I haven't seen the expense claims, but uh, he was uh, trying to get a little bit of information about you know what some what some of the services being offered to. Uh, so who's calling? I mentioned escorts on the show, and someone calls me immediately. So bear with me there. Uh, the, uh, it's Klaus Schwab, actually, and uh, yeah. So he he was doing that, and apparently they're all booked. Uh, so take from that what you will. And I think there's another story that he has coming out very shortly about how some of the locals are being evicted while the WEF elites are living high on the hog and in some cases getting like golden hang uh, coat hangers or something like that. So uh, do check out tnc.news for that. And if you want to support our coverage here, please do 
by heading over to donate.tnc.news. That does it for us for today. We will talk to you tomorrow live from overseas once again. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.